Howdy. Welcome to the News Print Commando. I'm your host, Ed Moore. Star Slayer, The Log of the Jolly Roger, issue number three from Pacific Comics is the book I hold in my hand today. If you do want to get in touch with me about this book or any of the others I've spoken of, you can tweet me at Teal Productions or News P Commando on Twitter. You can Facebook me at Teal Productions. You can email me at imindyman at gmail.com. You can leave comments on the website comicbooknoise.com slash TNC. That's Tango November Charlie, if I'm not enunciating clearly. And we have forums at justanotherfanboy.freeforums.net. So I continue my look at Pacific Comics by looking at the issues put out February of 1982, which includes the previously mentioned Star Slayer. It's the only book they put out. This was on sale November 20th, 1982, and that exact date is courtesy of Amazing Heroes number 8. Now on the front cover, it's just a beautiful full color cover of our two protagonists, Torin McQuinlan, who is Star Slayer, and Tamra, who actually turns out to be responsible for his creation. So walking down a hallway towards us in a spaceship that we find out in the story that they have come to because of a, a beacon, an emergency beacon that's sounding. But off to the side here, the left side, we see a pair of hands as if they are hiding in a side hallway and they're holding onto the, the corner of the wall between that side hallway and the hallway they're walking through, they being Torin and Tamara. Inside front cover is a black and white ad for Ms. Mystic. Said a little bit about that last episode. Also covered a short story of hers several episodes prior to that on the show. First story page. Through the silent seas of space, it sails on gossamer wings of glowing energy. Changing its tack to catch the solar winds, it rockets past the sun outward bound toward distant worlds. The Jolly Roger, last of the great interstellar sailing ships, a relic of a bygone era on a desperate mission to save a dying planet. Not bad, man. Um, nice image in that panel of a ship, uh, much as you would see on oceans today, a sailing vessel. Um, maybe not today. Think of the 1800s at the height of the sailing across the oceans in large sail-driven wooden boats. Except that this boat is not wooden, it's metal. These sails are made of, I don't know what they are, but they're catching solar winds in space, propelling the ship. Um, I've always thought that was a very cool, um, romantic, but not in a lovey-dovey romantic way, uh, kind of concept. Large, metallic vessels sailing the solar winds in space. Um, and she is telling Mac, because he is, or I'm sorry, Torin. Uh, because he is going on about how cool the, the boat is compared to where he's from, which is a medieval Earth about the time, uh, well, actually, it's probably even prior to medieval, uh, about the time that England was coming over to, excuse me, the Romans were coming over to the English Isles to conquer the English Isles. That is where Torin is, is originally from. 
But Tamara tells him they were built uh, for luxury. We built it for war. The weapons were added and even the warp drive engines that the old ones scorned. So it's really cool. Is this too a product of the magic you call science, Tamara? He asks. So they're going back and forth about the boat. And Sam interrupts them and tells them that they are coming up on Venus, which is their destination. The next two pages we see written and illustrated by Mike Grell, upper left-hand corner. Upper right-hand corner, Star Slayer. Lower right-hand corner, colorist Steve Olaf. And about, eh, I don't know, 85% of the page is an unframed image. It's just drawn and colored of the Jolly Roger from behind, but slightly starboard, right? Starboard is right. I think port is left. Four is forward and the stern is back, but uh, so it'd be a stern starboard of the ship as it's approaching Venus, which has been drawn and colored in the back of the right-hand page. And the ship is moving from left to right. Nice, nice image by Mr. Grell. So uh, Tamara is bringing Torin up on the history of what has happened. Venus was a colony of Earth, but it was very, very late in the age cycle of our sun. And on its way to being a red giant, the sun went nova and ate up Mercury, uh, burned off all of the cloud cover on Venus, and in an attempt to escape, the Venetian colonists boarded ships uh, that were in orbit and were going to attempt to get to Earth, which apparently would have been far enough away for the most part. Uh, Earth did suffer because of that nova as well. But the Venusians got caught in that flare, uh, the, the first flare, she says, of the sun as it went nova. And then uh, supposedly science says that the life cycle of the of a sun as it burns through its fuel is that it will start to expand in order, I guess, to try to achieve more fuel. And it'll expand quickly, quote unquote, Nova. And then when it gets to the limit of what it can expand to, it will contract back into a much, much smaller sun, uh, perhaps a white dwarf, I think, or maybe a blue dwarf uh, compared to what it is now, yellow giant, red giant. So, so they say, I don't know if science has ever really caught that in action. Uh, I don't know that we've been around long enough to catch something like that in action. I guess we'll see. So that's the story. We see he watches a video of his wife and child, which Tamara showed him to uh, try to entice him into believing that he was alive, uh, believing, uh, trying to entice Torin into believing who she was and that she had knowledge. So he goes he, he has accepted where he is now, but he went back via this video to visit with his wife and child. And that quick journey is interrupted by a mayday call that is received. And as they check to see where it is, it's coming from the floating relics, the derelict ships of the Venusians as they tried to escape. And the flare apparently killed all the biologic, but didn't necessarily destroy all of the vessels. The vessels didn't disintegrate or explode or whatever that they were on. Uh, I guess the flare was more an energy flare than actually a, a physical flare, but it killed the biologics leaving behind the ships in just this big floating junkyard kind of assembly. And from within that is where the Mayday is coming. So they slow their ship and leave it out, you know, out away over here for safety reasons, but they get in a 
little dinghy um, that Tamara calls the Bowsprit, B-O-W-S-P-R-I-T, Bowsprit. I'm not sure how you pronounce that. And launch it. And once it's launched, uh, it bears a striking resemblance to a TIE fighter, uh, particularly Darth Vader's TIE fighter. Now, this came to us in 1982. Um, Star Wars was already by 82. Uh, They were, what, two or maybe three movies in? I think definitely two, right? 77. So, anyways. So, we had seen Darth Vader's TIE fighter. So, I'm sure that's what Mike Grell is, is playing on here. But they fly to the source of the Mayday, board the ship, and start investigating. They find that the ship is pretty much intact with a breathable atmosphere in it. They start walking around and walk up to the bridge and find that those that were piloting the ship are dead still in their seat. But as they're investigating that in another two-page spread, they're attacked by a large, what Tamara calls a battle droid, and he is screeching out, execute prime directive, destroy. And he's a big, nasty-looking robot, uh, a battle droid with tubules uh, all over him and large nasty claws but what catches your attention is the something uh, dangling from his neck a medallion perhaps of some sort which is part of what Tamara is looking for she's looking for parts of a larger jewel that altogether will ultimately prove the uh, ability to save mankind somehow because of information I believe it contains the uh, collected jewel the assembled jewel But the battle droid attacks and attacks her first, knocks her down. Torin jumps to try to help her, but the battle droid is too fast and it grabs him by the face with one hand. And then with a nice big wolverine slash across the chest, it uh, throws him down on the floor, nearly disemboweled. It would seem, but he doesn't appear to be when he gets back up. And re-accosts the robot as it has grabbed up Tamara. Primarily, I think it's after Tamara because she spoke of the jewel that it has. And it knows, the battle droid knows that it must protect that jewel from falling into anyone else's hands. And she has verbally shown an interest in the uh, jewel. So the, the droid is definitely attacking her. Was it as it attacks her a second time, Torin regains himself, grabs his sword, and slices off the arm uh, that is clutching Tamara. And she, being freed because that one arm now has been removed from the robot's body, she is able to reach down and get a blaster and shoots the battle droid through the head. A couple things happen. The battle droid uh, escapes via a jetpack on its back, jetting back down through the hallway, screeching out, Scree! Disabled! Disabled! Command symbol must not fall to enemy hands. Retreat, retreat. So command symbol is what it views, that gem that it's carrying. But also, at that moment, an explosion rocks the alien vessel. Danger, danger. This is the ship that they're on, speaking. Reaction core damage. Detonation will occur in T-minus 2 minutes, 35 seconds. So now there is a little back and forth between Torin and Tamara. She wants to go after the battle droid and get that piece of the gem. Torin wants to gather her up and get the heck off the ship because the whole thing is going to blow up. Well, she won't see reason. I, I assume that's what you would, you know, how you would put their conversation because ultimately he gives her a left hook and knocks her out, slings her over a shoulder, and runs back off to the bowsprit, bowsprit, how do you say that? And the ship 
is less than a ship's length away from the ship as it explodes. So they get back to the Jolly Roger. Um, she is conscious. He's trying to appeal to her better side. She is upset because anything is any any risk is worth acquiring the gemstone, even her death and his death. Which is funny because if both of them had died, there would be essentially nobody left or nobody left that has a clue to where that portion of the gemstone is. So rather than the better part of Valor, um, she would have been willing to sacrifice herself and Torin. Uh, nobody else knowing that the gem is – yeah, I don't quite get that, but okay. Meanwhile, we see we, we see in this panel and that panel as we're reading uh, visions of, of the fact that the battle droid – must have gotten onto the bowsprit, and they took it back to the Jolly Roger. And so it's it's hiding here, and we see a part of it, and it's hiding there, and we see a part of it, until finally it's dropped down, and it's hunting them. And Sam sees the battle droid, and because of the headpiece that Torin has, he has uh, a psychic, as it were, a, a blue tooth, really, linked to Sam. And so Sam doesn't have to tell him that the battle droid is on the ship. Torin sees what Sam sees. And so he knows that the battle droid is there. It is sneaking up on him. And he manages to turn and throw his sword into the battle droid. But the main component of the weaponry of the sword is a bioelectric charge that Torin can fire, but only if he is in contact with the sword. So the sword did physical damage, but it didn't do the big kablooey kind of damage that Torin thought it would. Tamara reminds him, well, you have to have the sword in your, handle and in your hand and push the button to activate that bioelectric charge. So now Torin jumps up onto the battle droid and grasps the sword, triggering it, and there is a Blue fire of living energy that courses through the sword, and and then we see it just decimate this robot as the robot, the battle droid, collapses to the deck. He, Torin, uh, grabs the gem and hands it to Tamara, and basically he's like, there, are you happy? And she clubs him with a double fist and says, um, don't ever strike me again. Yeah, tough girl. Full page ad next for Pacific Comics with uh, Captain Victory and Star Slayer as the examples of Pacific Comics, which actually, at this point, are the only two books they have managed to put out. Now, we also have a follow-up to the last issue of Star Slayer. We have a little five-page, the second-ever appearance of The Rocketeer. Um, I neglected the... Star Slayer story was scripted, penciled, inked, and lettered by Mike Grell with colors by Steve Olaf. The Rocketeer is scripted, penciled, inked, and lettered by Dave Stevens with no attribution for the colors. So Cliff Secord has donned the Rocketeer's jetpack and fin helmet, and he's flying around trying to get up to a biplane where the pilot who was attempting to do some aerial circus kind of stuff passed out because he was drunk and now the plane is uncontrolled zooming you know presumably i don't know back and forth whatever i would think it would be straight lining um actually straight lighting at an angle from up to down ultimately crashing on the planet but whatever uh it's not my story i just read them zooming around and cliff is trying to catch up with it says uh peeve was right this helmet's fin is a perfect rudder 
Hang on, Malkin, here I come, as he's thinking to himself, Secord, the rocketeer, attempting to um, catch up to this biplane. The biplane, he Secord is going too fast because, again, he's wearing a rocket pack, uh, zooms past it, alters his flight path, tries to come back around at the plane, misadjusts again, and runs right into the upper wing um, as he, well, actually, he zooms around, turns, and comes at the biplane. So the biplane is coming at him and he at the biplane. He misjudges and he runs into the upper wing and crashes it with a crashes into the wing with a massive scrack, S-K-R-A-A-K. Um, no way he's not busted up. Uh, broken ribs at the very least, if not internal damage. Quick flip to the ground as they're watching uh, people in binoculars. Is this really happening? Oh, my God. He smacked right into the wing. So now the plane has started to plummet to the ground with Cliff hanging on to the plane, approaching the pilot, grabbing the pilot. Uh, can't get the pilot out at first, grabs the stick, but the stick is jammed so he can't pull the plane up as it's plummeting to the ground. Goes back to the pilot to try to free up the pilot, sees that they are heading right towards a large water tower. And in the final two panels on this page, he says, come on, you tub of guts, come on, and finally manages to rinse him, wrench him free out of the cockpit, pulling him, the pilot, back away as the biplane, indeed, propeller first crashes into a large water tower. Now, zooming uh, eight to ten feet above the ground now, the rocketeer has this pilot, drops him off into the crowd below, um, much like I'm sure a bag of cement would come at you at, I don't know, 100, 150 miles an hour, right? I mean, that's what's going. We, we still have to deal with inertia, even if we, uh, yeah. So he, he drops the dude at that speed and zooms off because he doesn't want anybody, of course, to find out who he is under all this paraphernalia. We cut back to a far removed corner of the airfield as someone knocks on a door and says, hi, Peavy. Betty, jeez, I almost gave up on you. And this is, um, Secord's on again, off again girlfriend, definitely patterned after Betty Page. And so she has come to see Cliff, and PV's like, well, you know, you just missed him. He's zooming around somewhere in that Rocketeer outfit. So they are actually, he calls it the um, using a stolen experimental engine, which I guess really is what it is. So they zoom off to try to find Cliff. They get to the active part of the airfield, PV asks what's going on, and he's told, a flying man saved a pilot. A flying man? Where is he? Don't know. He flew away in that direction. PV turns to Betty and says, cripes, he's headed for the hangar. Hold on. And we see Scree as the um, he cuts hard on the steering wheel of the car on the probably dirt or grass portion of the landing strip here that they're on, so I don't know that it would have made that noise, because they're not actually on the um, any paved portion. So, okay. So now Cliff is like, now he's realizing, I hope I haven't broken any ribs. It's sure, hey, those boxes, uh, initially he said, I gotta land quick, can barely breathe, because of the damage he did to himself by hitting that biplane wing. Those boxes there ought to break my fall. And looking at the way they're drawn, yeah, there's boxes there, but there's some wooden box pallets there too. So I, I kind of suspect that his landing isn't necessarily going to be as soft as he thinks. 
but he uh, cuts off the jet and and coasts into a crash, uh, a controlled controlled crash into these boxes and and uh, both cardboard and wooden crates and whatnot. In the final panel, we see him laying um, face up, definitely unconscious. Smoke coming off of his body, his jacket and pants torn, which were nothing special. They were regular gear. The only special gear is the helmet and the uh, rocket pack that he's got. All is quiet as Cliff's C-cord slips into oblivion. There's no applause, no cheering crowds, only the silent scrutiny of an uninvited audience of one. And we see somebody standing here uh, looking at him, leg up on a crate, um, spats on, white spats, it looks like. Looks like he's got pinstripe pants on. So this is a a dude, uh, dandily, shall I say, dressed up for the time. We have a big, thick question mark here with the narration text saying, Okay, reader, the fate of the Rocketeer is in your hands. If you'd like to see him fly again, write us. Dave Stevens. And so these first two parts um, from Star Slayer 2 and 3 were the first two parts of the Rocketeer. The third and fourth parts of the Rocketeer will appear in Pacific Presents Issues 1 and 2, which I also have slated for coverage whenever they come up in the publishing history. Next page is a letters page, uh, final page of the book, and continuing letters page on the inside back cover. Uh, None of the names really jump out at me. Somebody here, uh, Thomas Zidlicki, apparently works for Paperbacks and Comics Galore, so it's a comic book shop. Uh, either he works for or he owns the shop writing in. And then the back cover is full pay, uh, full color, The Rocketeer by Dave Stevens page. And it says uh, down here in the lower left, stick with us, we're making memories. And then there's a, a photo album with pictures, three by five pictures that have been stuck in it of the different aspects of The Rocketeer. Him and Betty and him flying, having saved the biplane pilot are the main two. And you can see the hands that are affixing the photographs into the uh, photo album. On the right hand is the control with the press button um, accelerator control for the Rocketeer rocket. So this is Cliff Secord himself who are placing these photos in the photo album. And the photos are labeled Cliff Secord and Betty Chaplin Field. And Betty, Chaplin Field, Fall 37, uh, is the one clear photo. And the other one beneath it, the first flight of the Rocketeer, Spring 38. And that's him carrying the unconscious pilot. So further advertising, they fully intend to continue the Rocketeer. They just, I don't know, for whatever reason, chose to pull it out of Star Slayer and insert it in Pacific Presents, which I believe is also an anthology title. But maybe uh, I've, I've read it because... About five, seven years ago, I went and grabbed all of the original Dave Stevens Rocketeer uh, stories, and and I read them then. Awesome story, beautiful artwork. Um, But at this point sitting here, I don't remember. I, I believe Pacific Presents is an anthology book, but I believe that what has happened is that the Rocketeer has become the primary story in that and that there may be one or two backup stories also but still an anthology book. So they've probably shifted from a you know four to five page story to a 10 to 15 page story uh, as far as expanding the, the Rocketeer story. 
also wanted to mention that the issue of Star Slayer, issue three, was reprinted in Star Slayer number four from Acclaim Valiant, in, uh, that I- series from 1995, and also reprinted in Star Slayer, I believe that's a trade paperback from Dark Horse, dated 2017. This Rocketeer story, woof, uh, was reprinted in the 85 Eclipse series, The Rocketeer. It was reprinted in the 2009 IDW, The Rocketeer, The Complete Adventure Deluxe Edition. And reprinted in the 2010 IDW Artist Edition, number one, Dave Stevens, The Rocketeer. So, um, wow, if that IDW book was... Large size, folio size. I bet this Dave Stevens art just pops. Mm. He, he was an awesome artist. Really, I don't think nowadays uh, he is spoken of quite as, as much as he should be. Um, it would be very interesting to have a, uh, a Dave Stevens-centric podcast to talk about all the different things that he did because he, he bounced around quite a bit. Was uh, comparatively rather short-lived also, unfortunately. Okay. So that is this episode's topic, and moving through, it looks like, let me see a minute, Aracel's Samurai number 4 looks to be the next book up I have slated. So I will talk to you guys about that when next I talk to you guys. Ciao. Ciao.